Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Star host, David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon. I'm an astrobiologist and I'm senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. My co host today, longtime Star Talk veteran and my good buddy, Chuck Nice. Hey, David. How you doing, Chuck? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me. Great to see you again. And tonight we're going to be talking about the world of climate scientists, but specifically the world of advocacy and activism. How do we navigate as scientists these questions of how to be advocates? Should we be activists? And to help guide us through this question, we've got climate scientist and director of NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, Gavin Schmidt. Welcome, Gavin. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, I first learned of Gavin, by the way, uh, by uh, reading his work on a resource that uh, has for years been very indispensable in helping people, myself included at times, sort out all these questions that come up about climate studies and what to believe and what not to believe and so-called skepticism and how to counter some of the arguments and counter arguments, a, a blog called realclimate.org. And uh, Gavin, uh, for years, has been a, a ringleader in that. Uh, and it's it's been an indispensable resource. Uh, he, he's also uh, the, the author of a, a really neat book called uh, Climate Change, Picturing the Science, with a, a lot of uh, great information about climate. So if you, if you want a resource that's fun to look at and uh, worthwhile to read, check out Gavin's book, Climate Change, Picturing the Science. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, so, so I want to get into, into these questions of uh, how, as, as scientists, should we approach some of these societal questions uh, and, and, and how do we deal with the tendency, the, the desire to be an activist, when that might, in the minds of some, discredit our supposed objective stance as scientists. We're going to break down that, whether that's a valid way to think about it. But before we even get into that, uh, Gavin, tell us a little bit about your scientific background. Uh, you know, climate change and climate modeling is such a, a huge um, thicket, if you will, of different specialties working together. And in order to for us to simulate and model and understand this beast of the earth. We have people that specialize in clouds and oceans and radiation and all this. What's your superpower uh, in the overall climate uh, modeling uh, landscape? Well, actually, it, it's putting that all together. Uh, so I started off as a mathematician um, and uh, one who worked on uh, applied mass problems to, uh, associated with ocean circulation and uh, and then kind of paleoclimate. And then when I got to uh, to NASA, uh, one of my first tasks was to to try and and improve and and put together bits of uh, models that had been kind of historically separate, but that really needed to be connected to answer some really deep questions. Uh, and so in putting those things together, it turns out you. You needed to know a little bit about the clouds and a little bit about the oceans and a little bit about uh, evaporation and condensation and rainfall and clouds. And putting that all together and making sure that that all worked, that you conserved energy, that you conserved mass, that uh, that it actually worked, that, that the things would compile. Uh, so that was my superpower. It was, it was, it was uh, bringing it all together. And Interestingly, that meant that, you know, as a scientist, I started to have a very broad view of the science, which subsequently has been very, very useful because I needed to know a little bit about all of the things that went into the models. 
kind of moves into my next question a little bit, I think, of you know how you moved from the science to communication. Obviously, you uh, I know you're still doing a lot of science and publishing papers, but you are also known uh, to me and to a lot of people as someone who's very effective at communicating about climate science um, through your blogging and writing and lecturing and and so forth. Was that something that was always sort of part of your plan when you went into science? Did you want to be a science communicator or is that something that sort of arose out of what you found yourself doing with the science? So the, the latter, it, it was... It was Something that I didn't really think about, but it, I always liked explaining things to people. I always liked bringing things together, right? So, you know, so scientists, you know, you can split them into lumpers and splitters, right? You know, somebody who goes all the way down and kind of splitting things into smaller and smaller things, or lumpers, like people putting things together. I was always uh, very much a lumper, you know, putting oh. things together. Um, and that means that you do have to spend a lot of time explaining things to people. You know, why are we doing this? What's the concept? What's the big picture? And so I found myself like getting better at that. And then seeing the kind of public discourse, kind of just getting worse and worse and worse yeah. and thinking, whose job is it to, to, to tell people what the bigger picture is? Whose job is it to, to help people work out what the difference is between nonsense and science? And you look around, you look around, and you realize it's nobody's job. Right, you know, uh, you know, journalism uh, is is to report the news. Well, you know, context and textbook stuff is not news. Um, scientists are paid to do science, uh, and so the only people that are left are, you know, politicians and talking heads right. who, quite frankly, don't know anything about anything. There you go. And, and I love that. Don't know anything about anything. <laughs> uh, let's get down know, to it. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I love about you, Gavin. You're so effective because you're just not condescending. <laughs> <laughs> so what I what I, so I say I started small. I said, you know, like I, I read something in in uh, one of the uh, the free newspapers in New York uh, at the time, and and I said, you know what. That's so totally wrong. I'm just going to write them a letter pointing out how totally wrong that is and, and, and showing them the right way. And uh, I don't really know what I was thinking, but, uh, you know, I wrote the letter and, uh, and they published it. I was thinking, oh, that's nice. Uh, but instead of, like, saying, oh, thank you very much, they, they, there was a whole other article about, like, what a terrible person I was and how my agenda was shining through and, uh, and how, you know, I was implicitly supporting um, biological warfare. Uh, it was very confused. And, oh, and I'm going, whoa, <laughs> okay. Leap. That does seem like a leap. Yes, yeah. yes, that does seem like a leap. Hey, we're, uh, we're, we might want to take a closer look at this climate issue because it affects us all. You are trying to support biological warfare. How does that even happen? Like I could, I could explain, but it's too tedious. Okay. But, um, <laughs> and and I'm going. Oh well, that's a little bit odd. And and I started thinking a yeah, little bit more. You realize that you uh, you hit on some hot button there. <laughs> well, that's right. You know why? Why was that a hot button? And so I practiced a little bit more, a few more layers to the editor. You know, and then we started thinking. Well, how can we do this in a more systematic way? And and, and if you remember back to the early 2000s, I don't know. Do, do we? Does anybody remember the early 2000s? Yeah, I was going to say, early, yeah. I, I, almost, I, yeah. almost. Anyway, so, so then the big internet thing was the blog, right? Everybody had a blog and we thought, oh, we could have a blog. Wouldn't that be great? We could have, I and mean, then we'd be able to interact with real people in real time. It'd be wonderful. Um, and, and it wasn't quite what we envisaged, but, you know, we, we were the first uh, 
uh, among the first scientists, uh, there was a, you know, Sean Carroll was, a, was an early blogger as well. And, uh, uh, but we were some of the earliest scientists who had a platform who were talking directly to interested public, right? Not and, going and when you say we, that's, I think that was a feature of it too. There were people that had individual blogs, but what I remember uh, when I first discovered uh, um, Real Climate right. was that it was a group um, that sort of shared duties, but all kind of shared the same rigor and ability to communicate. So there was a team aspect to it that was very effective. Well, actually, the team aspect was really key, right? So A, it makes sure you don't say something silly that's just a little bit outside of your field, but you don't know you don't know exactly, and somebody will correct you. And say, no, 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 you can't say it. You should say this. Okay, so so there was an element of review that was very useful. Plus, it's extremely tedious working our blog, like, you know, approving comments and, like, you know, dealing with this and dealing with trolls, and it takes time. And so if you don't share that out, uh, then it becomes overwhelming. And then you've got this whole kind of, uh, you had to, to you had to feed the blog, right? You know, if you didn't put something up every other day, then like you know, you'd get antsy, and people would say, "What's going on? Hey, where are you? Where Where are you exactly?" And so there was this there was this um, impetus to to always come up with something. Like there was this other thing that just came out here. Why don't you write five thousand words on this other thing that came out? And you're going, "No, I can't. I, I have a job. I have a life, <laughs> and I can't always be doing this." And I remember once, you know, I, I was going to a meeting in California, and so you know there was there were, it was complicated. I was traveling. You know, I wasn't online. And, you know, for basically 24 hours, I wasn't online. You know, and then there's like a whole bunch of uh, articles. Oh, you know, this person didn't like, he's such a liar and a, and, a, and, a, and a dishonest person because he didn't approve my comment within 10 minutes. And I'm going, dude. <laughs> anyway, so these things like it, it, at the time, like now it doesn't matter so much. But at the time, it was it was a very present thing. And, uh, and you needed to have people helping you out. Because if you just decided to do it on your own, it was just impossible. So so sharing that load made it made it a much more credible and much more sustainable thing. Cool. Let me ask you this. Now that you talk about uh, trolls and comments on a blog, uh, I recently heard a comment from a person who I might say is uh, pretty uh, prominent and influential who said uh, that the uh, the Arctic is uh, the, the, the polar ice caps aren't melting. They're not melting. As a matter of fact, we've set records in, you know, like they were melting before, but now. Now we're setting records at how they're not melting. Chuck, I've told you you shouldn't go reading those tabloids. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no idea what you're talking about, but the ice caps are indeed melting. The sea ice is melting. And well, it was our president who melting. said that. He actually said that the yeah. polar ice caps are not melting. As a matter of fact, under his administration, uh, we are setting records in the, in the fact that they are, I guess there's a refreeze. Oh, that guy. <laughs> he says all kinds of things. Yeah. But getting back to... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, you know, there are people, you can find just about any statement that uh, that related to climate and find somebody who said it, says it, right? right. Um, but then, of course, there's a spectrum of people who have legitimate questions. Um, and, um, you know, that, I mean, skepticism used to be, still is, real skepticism something that science needs, but it's become a proxy in this particular climate um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this particular uh, discussion, argument, whatever, for a point of view mm -hmm. that, of course, isn't really skeptical at all. It's committed to uh, obfuscation and propaganda. That's yeah, what it's committed yeah. to. So, so I mean, yes. that's uh, that, that's something I really, you know, would love to break down with, with you a little bit. You know, how do you 
respond to those kinds of, of attitudes. I, I, I find you to be a very effective communicator. And I know that, you know, there are people that you, one has to throw up their hands and say, I cannot communicate with this person. They're just committed to, um, to disagreeing. But then there are people who you try to reach, you know, how do you, how do you figure out who, you know, who you're talking to and how do you, how do you approach, um, whether it's even worth engaging in those kinds of well, situations. That's exactly key. Who are you talking to? If you're doing something in public, you aren't just talking to the person who's across the table from you. You're talking to all the people who are listening or watching or reading, right? And so, uh, you know, somebody can can be, you know, totally committed to an unscientific idea or a predisposed viewpoint, but you can still sometimes wrestle something out of the questions that they have or the statements they make that is, that is useful to the audience, right? So, you know, I mean, like the, 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 there's a, a talking point that gets used all the time. Oh, yeah, but the climate's always changed. Always. It always has changed. Yeah. Which is no, true. Which is true. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, so this is the great thing. So if somebody says that, you know, and, and what, they, what they mean to say is, well, the climate's always changed, therefore we can't do any attribution, therefore uh, humans aren't doing anything right now. Right. Yeah. Okay, put that aside. The climate has changed. Yes, it has. And let me explain to you how we understand that how past climate has changed. All the things that caused the climate to change in the past and why we know they're not what's going on right now. And so at, at, the, at the kernel of every nonsense talking point, right, there is, there is something interesting below it, right? Sometimes you have to dig pretty deep, right? right. right? And if you can pull out that something, right, then that – your response, your answer can actually become very interesting to the people who are watching. And actually it makes you, I, I mean, it, I, it appears to me that it makes you seem like the, uh, like the more knowledgeable person because you're not just parroting talking points. Right, you're actually right. going into so you, fi you find some basis of agreement, something that you can say, yes, you're right about that. But, and, but and, and then you use that as a point of departure rather than just saying, oh, you're an tat. idiot about everything. Right. So it, don't it, go it's, tit for tat. No, it, it's tit for tat doesn't work. No, and, and going no, like, you know, going like uh, going up against people doesn't work. Um, How about you effing homunculus ignorant piece of that doesn't work either? Right? Not generally. No, okay, right. no, but I haven't tried those exact words. Maybe next time. <laughs> Maybe next time. Kevin's making some notes here. No. <laughs> but I, you know, I like to think of it as like interview judo. Right. So, so instead of like kind of karate where you kind of try and block it directly, judo is like, you know, you kind of lead them along and you just take the path and you just walk straight past them. And, and, you, use, and you, you use their and you energy use... and pull it, pull it in a different direction rather than just trying to block it. Exactly. Yeah. So can I ask both of you a question uh, since I know this is something that you're both very, very uh, um, active in um, advocating and educating people about. I'll give you the example. I'm at a newsroom. I'm talking to a guy who is going to run for Congress. Okay. He's going to run for Congress in New York, uh, for, from New York State. He said to me that he did not believe in climate change. Okay. And we got into a very long conversation and it ended up being that tit for tat you were talking about. And so I quickly let it go because I realized. I'm not accomplishing my goal here, right. which is to let this guy know that it is real. And it is, and here's why, as somebody who wants to represent our entire nation through your district, this is why you should be concerned. Mm -hmm. So what I want to ask is, what can you tell somebody when they say to you or ask you, well, what is climate change? Because that tends to be a question that people pose, and they pose it in a way kind of like, all right, you're so effing smart. What is climate change? So what is climate change? Right. 
So, um, you know, <laughs> an, an, analogies, <laughs> analogies are really good. You know, you've got a, um, a, a climate is like your wardrobe and weather is the, what you're wearing today. Right. So you've got your, uh, you know, you make choices every day. You wear something different every day, hopefully. <laughs> um, and but, you know, your options are limited. Right. You know, it's whatever's in your wardrobe. Climate change is somebody coming in, taking out all your clothes and putting a whole new bunch of clothes in there. And you don't know that they're going to fit. Right. And you don't know that the color scheme is really your color scheme. And uh, they may not even, uh, you know, be anything like what you would actually want to do. Right, so you've adapted to your current wardrobe. You know exactly what what uh, what shirt you want to get. You go, you go straight to the place in the wardrobe where that's at. Um, climate change. Somebody has replaced all of that, and you don't know where to go anymore. So it's just like I I had perfectly fitting clothes, and now I have a closet full of toddler sizes. Like that doesn't work for me. Uh, yes, no, that wouldn't that wouldn't work for you. I, I, I'm I'm picturing that right now. That would not work for you. I've, I found myself rather <laughs> fetching in a pair of toddler pants. Thank you. <laughs> I can't even really picture that, Chuck. I don't think I want to. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it, it it is interesting. You know, when you get a question that is obviously meant to be confrontational like that yeah. you have a choice of how to respond but a lot of it does depend on it as gavin was saying trying to figure out who you're talking to and it's not a one-size-all um, kind of answer it's very much uh, trying to figure out can i be effective in this conversation with this person how can i find some basis to be and sometimes you just can't i mean the, the key thing is is actually to listen and not to talk you know, where, where do these people, where, where are they coming from? You know, what is their real issue? I mean, because often it isn't anything to do with the ice caps or polar bears or whatever it is they're talking about. It's something else. Yeah. So go to the something else because that's going to be a much more uh, productive conversation. And speaking of listening and talking, we have to take a little break here. We're going to wrap up this segment, but we'll be right back with more StarTalk All-Stars. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon on Twitter. My co host today is Chuck Nice. Sir. You can find him on Twitter at Chuck Nice Comic. Thank you, sir. Yes. And our expert guest today is Dr. Gavin Schmidt. You can find Gavin on Twitter at Climate of Gavin. At Climate of Gavin, right? Nice. Yep. Yeah. See, I follow you. <laughs> um, Maybe I'll follow you. I, I don't yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you can try it for a few days and then you probably end up, end up muting Dr. Funky Spoon. <laughs> Anyways, we're, uh, we're talking about uh, climate change and uh, how to communicate about it, uh, sometimes with, with those who are not completely receptive. Uh, one tricky question that I've thought about a lot, and I know Gavin has thought about a lot, is... Should scientists do more than just communicate the science, uh, you know, just the facts, ma'am? Should we be activists? If we are really concerned about a problem that we feel our expertise gives us insight into, is it enough to just teach how the science works, want people to understand the climate system, or should we advocate for policies, or even uh, get into political activism. It's hard to imagine if there's something you're really concerned about that you perceive of as an emergency, uh, feeling like you're just going to be a neutral reporter on this. But at the same time, 
activism has its risks for scientists. Uh, we were taught, I was taught, and I think, Gavin, you probably were at one point, too, in your education. Um, as a young scientist, I was taught that, quote, science is value neutral, that um, science doesn't have any position on, on anything. It's just a matter of describing how the universe works, how the world works. But of course, that's not really true. Uh, it can't, strictly speaking, you can't separate the science from the implications of the science. Mm -hmm. And there are some famous examples of scientists who have been very effective as as advocates. Uh, you know, one of my big influences in life and what my mentor was Carl Sagan, who... Um, you know, frankly, uh, got a lot of shit from the scientific community for for his activism about nuclear winter and nuclear weapons and other things. And yet he was indispensable as a voice of conscience. Um, and his science gave him some of that weight. And he was right. Uh, and he was right. And, 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 you, and you guys are right. That's what kills me. I, I see what you're saying about that. But, but you it, guys are right. Well, sometimes, I mean, I think so. But but there's a danger in that people will say, well, you, you know what answer you want in your science. You're trying to make a point. So should we believe your your paper. Gavin, I know you've wrestled with these questions. I saw you give a talk a few years ago at the AGU where you talked about this question of should scientists be, be activists. Right. Um, what do you think? How do we retain our credibility but also act as citizens with concerns about issues? So I think you have to understand where your views come from, where your advocacy comes from, and uh, and what and how your values are shared uh, amongst people, and and those really kind of outline the risks that you have when you go forward. So um, if you if you're going to be doing anything in public, and and now that involves tweeting, putting things on Facebook. I mean, it's very it can be very low level letters to the editor. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, a very high profile uh, advocacy. But if you're doing something in public, you're doing it for a reason. What, what is that reason? What are you trying to achieve? People have to be a little bit self-reflective about what they're trying to achieve. You know, if you want to advocate for better education uh, at, at schools, like be upfront about that. That's what you're advocating for. If you want to advocate for, uh, you know, a, a deeper understanding in the public of, of your particular issue, then say that. If you're advocating for a specific policy change, if you're advocating for a, a different um, funding uh, model, or you want money to go into this kind of research as opposed to that kind of research, all of those things are political. All mm -hmm. of those things are value-based, mm -hmm. right? And you have to you have to understand that. There's, none of those things are value-neutral or just just the facts, right? You know, if you decide to put facts into a public discussion, well, why did you choose that discussion? Why did you choose that moment? Why did you choose these facts, right? All of those things are subjective decisions that you've made. But can I push back on that just a little bit, Gavin? Um, and, and clearly I have no real, um, I, I, I have no expertise here. So it's not like I can really uh, say or speak about this the way you two can, you know, because my philosophy where yours is, you know, uh, as a scientist, you're looking at being neutral because the science is neutral. It's just what it is. My philosophy is to crush your enemies, uh, <laughs> see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women and children. So uh, <laughs> it's good that you're upfront about that. <laughs> exactly. You know, this is it. Very self-reflective. This is <laughs> but what you just said, once you actually make a valuation, then it automatically becomes political. But some valuations are more valid than others, is what I'm saying. And your valuations as scientists are more valid because your motivations are different. So shouldn't that be considered when we're having the conversation? 
Right, but there's a there's a bit of a slippery slope there, okay. right? So so my uh, my views on on what is going on are more informed than than you know than Jane Doe or somebody in the in the public. Jane's pretty smart. Uh, well, no, I died. Yeah, Doctor Doe. I. Go ahead. And so, you know, I think it, it's right that, you know, that without any uh, without any reason to, to think the contrary, that what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the science, you know, has more credibility than uh, than, than somebody else's. Um, but the decision about what to do about the science, whether to, you know, educate people about it, whether to do something, whether to change policy, whether to reduce emissions, uh, those are all value judgments. And it's a function of... You know, what do you value? Do you value the future compared to the present? Do you value, uh, you know, the environment over uh, enjoyment? Do you, do, you, do you prefer, you know, using it all up now and then forgetting about tomorrow? All of these things are very personal th things about people that th there's no right answer. Right. It's it's and politics is the way that we mediate between all of those different people with all their different values. Yeah. So, right. So 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 to pretend that that science sits outside of politics or that science policy is outside of politics is is a fundamental like like error. Right. Uh, it, and, 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 it, it doesn't work to, to assume that you can sit outside of it. And yet aren't there risks of scientists becoming advocates and activists Um I'll, I'll give you an example, again, going back to Carl Sagan, um, you know, when he he came up with uh, with colleagues, it was really his colleagues that did a lot of the modeling, but they, they wrote this paper about nuclear winter. And then Carl uh, very effectively um, advocated to change the position, uh, the defense posture of the United States and the Soviet Union because of the realization that nuclear war was suicidal no matter who started it, um, which was a very effective argument for nuclear disarmament. And then some other scientists accused him of um, overemphasizing the science of nuclear winter because it helped make his point very effectively. And then, there and then there's been an interesting back and forth, and it turned out that that Criticism was largely wrong, that in fact their science was pretty good. But as a climate scientist, say you're part of an organization that um, there's activists for, um, for climate policy, for uh, getting rid of fossil fuels and all the things mm -hmm. that people who are concerned about climate want. And then you're also publishing papers. Isn't it pretty convenient for you to do a study which shows that the ice caps are melting really rapidly and the sea levels rising really rapidly? And how do you avoid the temptation or even the suspicion um, that your results are convenient for the point you're trying to make? Aren't you just in the pocket of big solar, Gavin? I mean, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything, Gavin. I'm saying, isn't that a risk that one runs? Quite, quite frankly, like rising sea level is convenient for nobody, right? So, uh, For I, an argument. It's, you're right. Nobody, I don't think anybody's like advocating that they want it to happen. Right. So, so, so we're in this very odd position, right? So we're making predictions that we don't want to come true. Right. right? You, know, you like, want to be no, wrong. I want to... See, I, I, I wear two hats, effectively, right? You know, so I, so, you know, my scientist, you know, intellectual hat, you know, uh, you know, I make a prediction and it comes true and I'm thinking, oh yeah, how clever am I? I've wrestled some information out of the universe and I have used my understanding of how everything works to make a prediction and then look, bang, my prediction came true. 
gosh, isn't that the whole essence of science? Am I not following in the footsteps of, of Sagan and Newton? And, and you know, I'm call you, know, you Climadamus. Yeah, no, Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, right? Climadamus. But, but, that, that, <laughs> but that's what it's all about. You know, science, you know, you understand something, you make a prediction, you see if it comes true, right? Okay. And then I, I have my citizen hat, which never goes away, right? And I'm saying, okay, well, I made a prediction that, you know, last year was going to be the hottest year ever or the, the, the second hottest year ever. And I'm going, yes, I predicted that correctly. And then I'm going, oh, but I don't want that to be true. I want to be wrong. And, and so we, ha we have, this, we have this, this, this dilemma, this, this dichotomy that's going on. And, and we, we are, we're capable, and, and, you know, and, we, and this has been you know, sometimes literally beaten into us uh, through graduate school, <laughs> that uh, you know, uh, the science just is, and you make predictions. And, you know, and, uh, and then, but Sherwood Rowland uh, said this very eloquently, and uh, he, he was uh, one of the chemists that worked out the, uh, the chemistry of ozone depletion back in 1974, and he won the Nobel Prize for, for chemistry. And then many years later, he said, What's the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if in the end all you're willing to do is wait around for them to come true? Hmm. Right? We make predictions in order to provide information to tell us to, to give us guidance, mm -hmm. right? Well, the, you know, I mean, there are some well, predictions. Especially when we're predicting the, the behavior of the system that we live within and depend upon for our well-being. It's a little different right. for predicting that two, uh, two uh, <laughs> asteroids are going to collide somewhere out there. But right. if you're predicting what's going to happen with our world, it's not always best to just wait around. Right. Uh, well, you right. Know, well, if there's two asteroids, I wouldn't wait around for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this. This is the first time I've ever heard um, – a scientist say that, and you both said it simultaneously, we want to be wrong. I think that that's something that scientists need to interject into the conversation because yeah. it humanizes you, and it makes me, as a regular citizen, kind of more sympathetic because mm -hmm. the way your opposition will um, position uh, what you are doing is – well, you guys just want to be right. And of course you can't say you can't be wrong because no matter what, then that will, that will cut your funding and that will make you look stupid. And that, so to actually hear you both kind of simultaneously say that with no provocation from one another. Yeah. We want to be wrong. That's on this, <laughs> on this, on this, <laughs> but that's a huge thing. It's an, it's an easy thing to say. And I, I think what Gavin's saying is admirable, but at the same time, if you're a young scientist defending your dissertation and worried about getting a job and publishing, you don't always really want to be wrong on that, you know, level. Okay. Ultimately, <laughs> if you're doom, you want to be wrong. But there's a lot of um, reasons why scientists are um, committed to trying to be right. Okay. They partly have to do with just their own security in their lives and careers. But see, that lets me, that uh, the way that informs me, what you just said is the reason why you want to be right, uh, I would hope, would mean that that means you're going to do very good research and your due diligence is going to be very good because you want to be right, not just you're going to make up numbers and put it out there. Well, yeah, you know, there's ego involved too, but, you know, there's this, there's this also this idea that science is self-correcting and it is. It's not perfect. But if you're wrong, some other scientist is going to be able to right. publish a paper being right and showing how but, you're wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, it's basically someone else correcting, right? So, so, so quite often it isn't self-correcting. I mean, you'd like to think that, that we were good enough to, to be able to correct our own work and things. But, you know, like ego gets in the way sometimes. Uh, but 
you know, you're putting stuff out there and, you know, you asked me earlier on, how, how do you, how do you get past the people who, uh, who are saying, oh, well, you know, I don't believe you. You, you, you be transparent. You put out the code, you put out the data, right? You, you show everybody your workings, you, you explore yourself, all the different things that could be happening, right? You know, when we, when we do a, an attribution of, of why the climate has changed over the, the last hundred years, you know, we, we ask those questions like, well, maybe it was the sun. Let's try the sun. Let's, let's try the, the orbital wobbles of the earth. Let's try deforestation. Let's try all of these things, right? Anything you could, like, we can, we'll try that. But none of those fit. None of those fit the data. And when, you know, it's not just we come up with one thing and then that's the answer. It's like we try everything and, and then that, we see what's left. And that's what some of the, you know, some of the sort of more naive, quote, skepticism, uh, you would think that scientists hadn't thought that it might be the sun. Right. <laughs> Actually, we've tried that. <laughs> right. 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 And there's yeah. some fascinating stuff that's going on with the sun. I mean, like, it's really, it's really very interesting. But it's not what's causing global warming. Here's another possible danger. Because... Um, Climate science is sort of under attack, relentless attack for years and years mm -hmm. of people criticizing our credibility and so forth. Has, is there a tendency to downplay what we don't know? I mean, in reality, the uncertainty is a part of predicting any sure. complex system. But is there a defensiveness that has crept in that has led people to pretend we know more than we know? And oh, is that is that like a, a danger? Being gun shy, a little gun shy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think so. I think people are gun shy, um, and and that makes sense because you don't want people shooting at you generally. Um, <laughs> I, but I think I think you you have to look past how like I mean some some individual scientists d don't deal well with criticism, and and you know and that that's across that's across the board. You know, I mean, like some of the the uh, the issues in in psychology, right? Uh, there's been a lot of over defensiveness of things that were actually pretty weak results in the first place. And, and that doesn't look good. And so you, you know, so that's, that's, uh, that's clearly happened, but you have to look at the, at the, at the bulk, right? You know, uh, public policy shouldn't be based on individual studies or individual scientists or anything I say, or anything this guy says or anything she says, uh, it should be based on, you know, what, the, what the, what the bulk of the, of the science is saying, things that, that make it into a national academies report, Right, you know, they're there to assess all the differences, get past the individual egos, get past the the character flaws of of imperfect scientists, and come up with uh, what what's you know what 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 have we what have we learned uh, as as a body of work? Well, that collective uh, nature uh, maybe uh, is is a bit of a, a defense against that over over defensiveness that any individual could um, be subject to. Right, right, because science science works not because science scientists are all individually perfect human beings, because obviously they're not. Oh, God, no. No, I know. I know, I, I know Sorry, Chuck. I know, yeah. You've upset him. I know. Science works despite the fact that scientists are all imperfect, ego-ridden, selfish, defensive, like busy, you know, like people. Right? Isn't that what makes yeah. it science? Is the fact that despite all of those things, like you say, when you guys correct each other, that becomes the failsafe. Yeah, right? we we still get somewhere despite all that. Right. Uh, on that, on that uh, interesting note, we're going to have to take another break. We're going to uh, end this segment and get ready to start another one. We'll be back with more about climate science and activism when star talk returns welcome back to star talk all-stars david grinspoon here aka dr funky spoon your all-star host i'm with chuck nice co-hosting yes, sir 
And our guest today is the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, Gavin Schmidt. Uh, we've been talking about climate science and the role of activism among scientists. How do we navigate the politics when sometimes all we want to do is the science. Um, Chuck, I think uh, you uh, you had a burning question uh, that you yeah, mentioned during the break, so well, go it, for it. It popped into my head uh, when it talks about modeling, and this is something for both of you. So when you look at something like Venus, where I've heard people talk about Venus and runaway greenhouse gas on Venus, okay? So how can is has there done, been any modeling done that we can draw comparisons to earth and venus and and how does that work absolutely i mean you know if our climate models are any good they ought to work on all planets it's the same physics with a, a variation in the conditions but you know if you think about it when we try to model future conditions on earth we're taking the same physics and varying the atmosphere in various ways so we ought to be able to do that in a more extreme way and make climate uh, simulate the climate of other planets. And to some degree, we can. To some degree, it doesn't work, which teaches us things about our models and teaches us we have to go back and observe those planets some more. Uh, Venus had a runaway greenhouse because the the in the past, uh, its oceans uh, basically boiled off and escaped to space because the sun is very slowly heating up. And Venus being um, 30% closer to the sun gets about twice as much solar radiation. And it passed a threshold in time that Earth will pass in the future. But now we're talking more than a billion years in the future of uh, too much sunlight so that no matter what, uh, it can't be radiated away fast enough and the oceans have to boil off. That has been modeled. It's not an immediate danger on Earth. (laughs) 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 Collective. (laughs) There's been an argument, an interesting argument over whether or not if we did exactly the wrong thing, if we burned all our fossil fuels, if we took every atom of reduced carbon that we could dig up and burned it all, could we trigger a runaway greenhouse on Earth? And uh, there's legitimate scientific disagreement about that. I think the weight of argument is that, no, we probably couldn't do it yet. Yet. In the future, (laughs) the sun will be hotter. Now, that's cold comfort um, or lukewarm comfort because um, you don't have to get nearly that far before you make Earth completely uninhabitable. Okay. But we're not literally in danger of pushing Earth into a Venus-like state, I believe. I, like following on from that, I mean, one of the interesting things that we've been working on the last few years has actually been taking the models, the, the, the very specific models that we've been using to model you know, the 20th century and, and what's going to happen in the 21st century, and, and changing the conditions so that you can do Mars, and you can do Venus, and you can do Titan, you can do you know, random exoplanets that you want to do. And in doing so, what happens is, is, is the model breaks all the time, because you, you've, you've gone past some you know, assumption that you built into it, and you think, oh, well, actually, that's not a good assumption, let's fix that, right. let's fix that. And uh-huh. And so you end up expanding the range that your model is valid for. And we've been doing we've been doing simulations of, of Venus like three billion years ago. And hey, we had a we had a paper last year uh, that suggested that uh, Venus might have been the first habitable planet in the solar system wow. three billion years ago. So yeah, I mean Venus actually, uh, if you go back in time, which largely means you cool the sun off a little bit, right. Venus behaves a lot like Earth today. And then it's very interesting to try to understand the behavior, what happens when uh, the sun gets warm enough so that it stops behaving like Earth. And okay. that is something that we've been working on in this this project that, that Gavin mentioned. And, uh, you know, there's a little uh, 
advertisement we can make here for uh, planetary exploration, because as Gavin said, we discover things about our climate models when we try to use them for Venus and Mars, and they don't quite work. Okay. We, we realize, oh, we were making this assumption that we didn't really, we forgot we made this assumption because normally we don't violate it. And so we get a little bit smarter about the totality of our modeling when we try these sort of extreme exercises of simulating other planets. So these models actually help you create better models once, once you... Uh, play them out to their nth degree well so it's, no it's the comparison to observations right so you 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 understand something you write it down you can encapsulate that in code and then you say okay well and then you look at the the real world or the real worlds uh-huh. and you say oh it doesn't quite fit and so you go back and you try and fix it you try and you try and understand what's going on gotcha. and the observations that we have of mars and of venus and of titan uh, you know with the cassini mission that, that just finished right those are helping us review well what happens when your rain is 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 methane right you know, how does that change everything and and you know allowing that to be part of your uh, your solution as well i mean that it's it's a fascinating endeavor right? like people have like in our in our lab they've never been more excited than than trying to apply these things to a wider quick follow up once we had a question with dr tyson uh but now since you guys are climate scientists and models uh um that a person said that the variables involved in creating any model that would be viable are so immense that there's no way that you could actually create a model that works perfectly, that there's no really very good model because these variables are so vast. There's no way you could get all the variables. That's what you mean by perfectly. A model is created with a specific purpose of answering a set of questions. It's always going to be a simplification of the real world, the real universe. If, if it wasn't, you wouldn't need a model. You just have the universe, but, but models, I don't know about perfectly. What does that even mean? But they perform very well, um, Often to address the question that they are built to address. Okay, let, let me let me phrase that slightly differently. Okay, so n- models are never perfect, right? Okay. No, no model is perfect, right? That's what you say. So models are always wrong, right? They're always wrong in in some details, some particular, so, you know. So, the, so the, the reason we use models is is not for them to be perfect, but for them to be useful. Right. So, so the question is: Are the models useful? Are they predicting something uh, that we wouldn't have otherwise predicted? Right. That, you know, you can't just uh, say, oh, um, like for weather. Right. You know, I can predict that the weather today is going to be the same as as tomorrow. I don't need a model for that. It's very simple. You know, so if I'm making a weather model, it has to do better than that. It has to be skillful with respect to what we call their persistence. And weather models are much, much better than persistence now. Right. They're much, much more useful. Like five day forecasts are as good as two day forecasts were 30 years ago. That's a great right? practical example. Everybody can so, relate to of how things have there you go. gotten better. And, 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 <laughs> and, they're, and they're getting more and more useful. Right. So, so that's the metric how you judge models. Okay. Now, so you say, OK, well, it's so complicated. I can't possibly it can't possibly work. Right? No, it can't possibly work perfectly. But can it work usefully? You know, a big volcano goes off tomorrow. Right? Is my model going to predict how much colder the uh, the world is going to get next year and the year after? It will, and it will get it right to within a tenth of a degree. Right? Is has my model uh, been able to predict uh, what 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 uh, what was going to happen uh, after the year two thousand uh, when we ran it in 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 the year two thousand? The answer is yes. It got the trend in uh, in in temperatures and the trend in sea ice and all the rest of it. You know. 
pretty much spot on. And people who are who are saying, oh, well, you, you can't predict anything. Blah, 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 they're all saying, well, nothing's going to happen. It's going to be flat. It's going to get colder. Oh, global, you know, new ice age. Blah, blah. That's all bullshit. <laughs> the models make useful predictions in real time. They give us understanding about what's happened in the past. They allow us to uh, deal with, you know, like seemingly contradictory observations. You know, this observation says this, this observation says that seems to be seems to be incompatible. And the models can help you work out, well, are the, are the observations wrong? Uh, are we just comparing the wrong things together? Uh, or did we miss out something? And, and they can help us improve the under the observations as well and the models get better all the time mm -hmm. and when we are wrong they get better because of that so uh you know they're they, it's not a static situation cool. uh, i want to cool. ask you something else gavin it's sort of a two-part question you can answer however you want yeah uh w one part's personal one part's more um sort of um professional strategy this is about optimism and pessimism mm -hmm. uh, you deal with this fairly heavy topic of um the way our world is changing at our own hands and the the price we may pay for that. Uh, and yet, uh, you don't seem horribly depressed. I've seen you smile several times today. <laughs> so how do you personally uh, keep your spirits up immersed in um, this uh, sort of intense topic? And then, and then the related, perhaps hopefully related question, if I'm being coherent here, is uh, as far as communication strategy, uh, this is something I've observed that I think you handle pretty well, because one thing we encounter when we're communicating about this sort of topic is people are so committed to doom that sometimes people get offended when you make a statement that everything isn't completely hopeless. Um, and you want to give people hope, you want to engage them constructively, and yet you don't want to be sort of uh, looking at the world with rose-tinted rose glasses. So how do you balance um, personally and professionally this sort of um, tendency towards pessimism of like, oh my God, the world's doomed. We, we're irredeemably destroying it um, versus the um, constructive engagement of people's hope and optimism. We're all going to die, man. <laughs> we're all going to die. Game over. Okay. That's well, well, that's we, 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 <laughs> we, we actually are all going to die. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is one thing we can um, say that's, uh, that's, that's obviously true. And, 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 Okay, but I mean, but that's it. I mean, we are all going to die, and yet we manage somehow to to create a little happiness here and there um, to uh, to guide us through our days. You know, I mean, I've got a I've got a small child uh, who's a total delight and is objectively cute, and it's not just me saying so. And, <laughs> no and, and subjectivity and, in this case. No, I've, I've, no I, I've done polls. Um, <laughs> there are models that and, show, and, and you know, and. Uh, I, you know, even if even if like something terrible were to happen, and and these things do happen, you know, you 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 have like moments in the day that are just marvelous, and and those and those and while there is life, there is hope, and so you know, I I balance like kind of my my pessimism about our ability to reduce emissions fast enough to avoid you know some of the worst impacts uh, with the fact that. You know, life can be joyful, and we can have fun, and uh, we, and in the end, we are going to see the right thing to do here. Now, it it might take longer than people want it. I mean, like you know, ideally, you you wanted to have started dealing with this thirty years ago. We didn't, right? And uh, and obviously, that's going to make things worse. Uh, in the future, but you know there are still good things to be doing. There are there are better decisions that that can be made, and it doesn't matter actually how bad things get. 
we're always going to be making decisions for the future. And at every point, we can make decisions that make things better or make things worse. And we should be pushing people to make decisions that are going to make things better. And I don't know that that's really controversial. <laughs> I, I think the uh, I think what Gavin's trying to say here is sell your beachfront property now. <laughs> <laughs> but you seem to think that we're going to... Uh, Managed to get through this. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different trajectories, but we will right. be off fossil fuels. And that you, you seem to have some basic faith that we won't follow the best path, but that there will be a path and that humanity will somehow get through this climate crisis and uh, move on to other crises. <laughs> well, I mean, th this will be the crisis of the century. I mean, this isn't going away. Um, you know, we've already changed things uh, in ways that they're not going to go back to Holocene conditions. You know, we are in a, a new geological era. And, you know, we've already made our mark uh, that, that is as large a signal in the geology than, than, you know, things that people have thought of as total catastrophes in the past. Right. And yet we're still here and we still have choices and we can still make better choices. And, uh, you know, for, for people to say that they're like, oh, we're doomed is, is also to say there's nothing we can do. I, I, you know, every day I see decisions that are being made that could be made better right? from, you know, my point of view. I mean, I, and so we should be encouraging people to make better decisions. Right. So if you just say we're doomed, then that's pretty much a recipe for paralysis. It's kind of a useless position. And it's also not really validated by any model or, or anything. It's just a position. And uh, I, 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 like, I like what you're saying. There's always room for better decisions. So all we can do is, is encourage that. I'm encouraged, guys. Yeah. I got to tell you, that may, hope, I mean, actually, hope sparks action. Uh, and so, wow. yeah, we've gotten go. through to Chuck Nice. I think yeah. we're, we're getting somewhere. I'm telling you just that what you guys both just said, uh, I'm telling you, I feel a little better about it. All right, this. before we lose this moment of bliss, <laughs> we're going to have to wrap up this episode. That's it for this episode of Star Talk All Stars. Big thanks to my co-host, Chuck Nice. Always a pleasure. And thank you so much to Gavin Schmidt for dropping in to talk to us. Thank you. I've been your host, David Grinspoon, a.k.a. Dr. Funky Spoon. Until next time. Keep it funky.